Welcome in, everybody, to another episode of Cap and Trade. This is episode 54. I'm, jo- I'm joined tonight by Mr. Randy Mueller. He is currently the director of player personnel with the Seattle Sea Dragons over in the XFL and former for- front office and general manager over a, different, a couple different organizations with the NFL and, and also 2000 Executive of the Year Award winner. And I'm your host, Texans Cap. So if you've got any questions, comments, throw them up on the board. Uh, make sure you hit like and subscribe and with that, Mr. Mr. Mueller, Randy, how are you tonight, sir? I'm doing great. Easy on the mister. Randy yep. will work just fine. I'm glad to be with you. I know we've corresponded a little bit in the past, but glad to join your show. Yeah, no, I appreciate the time, sir. And uh, no, I just got a few things to to kind of touch on tonight. And the first one, you know, as we know, Houston hired D'Amico Ryan's new head coach, and is still in the process of putting together his his coaching staff. And I kind of wanted to get your opinion on on D'Amico Ryan's as being hired as a head coach but more so like once he's in the building once we've done the press conference once we've said hellos and he's met all everybody in the building and made those season ticket calls that we see the Texans putting up like sure. behind scenes in meetings like what are the few things off the top of your head that him and Nick Casario are going over primarily well, there's a lot, that's for sure. He's going to think he's drinking through a fire hose these first couple of weeks on the job, I can tell you that. And at age 38, he's not a seasoned coach to start with, but obviously uh, well thought of, and obviously I think it's a good hire. But he's going to have a lot of things on his plate from here on in. I always used to say when we would hire a coach, I said, part of the process is the process. And it's been a long two or three weeks for him, First of all, they played, but even when the 49ers season was over, he had a couple of weeks of fielding phone calls, doing interviews. And the problem, one of the things is when you are even a candidate for a job like this, your phone starts ringing off the hook. So you have to deal with everybody who wants a job, everybody who's been in your past that may want to come with you. You have to deal with a lot of things administratively. So sometimes that part of the process kind of eliminates people, in my opinion, because they're not used to dealing with the volume of communications that are out there. And that makes it hard. Uh, You don't get a chance to just sit in your office and watch film anymore. You don't get a chance to just, hey, let's devise this defensive scheme and not have to deal with anything else. So the distractions are real, especially once you sit in a job, whether it's as a GM or a head coach, the distractions will add up and you've got to carve out time to still do the job. I think the biggest thing is at least he has Nick who's been there a couple of years. It's not like Nick's a seasoned front office uh, GM himself, but I think he has been there. He knows where the bones are buried. He knows the mistakes they've made and the things that they've done well. I think the biggest things to, to really answer your question in a detailed fashion are probably got to go through everybody on your roster and deal with two things. You've got to give medical updates. So you're sitting down with your doctors, you're sitting down with your trainers and the head coach needs to get as much input as he can from these other people as to where we stand, because decisions have to be made on these players in free agency on contract issues, big things. So first of all, it's the medical stuff. Then it's a cap, uh, a cap download. You've got people that obviously do contracts that are involved in the cap every day. I would be one that would want my coach to know as much as he's willing to take in. So I want to know the details. 
of every deal we have pending, of every deal we have made, and every deal we may make in the future. Just so it gives me, as a GM, a, a, a football guy to bounce these things off of. So really, it's a bunch of downloading, and, and you're trying to gain, get him up to speed on everything Houston Texan decision-wise. And sometimes that just means taking a lot of information that things he's never had to deal with before. So in the meantime, oh, yeah, you got to hire a staff. <laughs> I'm sure Nick is involved in that. Um, he's, he's been a hands-on GM has been well-documented. So I'm sure they're involved in, in, uh, putting together the best staff they could. And then the biggest task to be honest with you is once they get that in place, they've got to redefine the job descriptions for each position that they're going to look for to build this team out with. It's hard to find players if you don't have a job description. And it may be one that Nick feels the organization has a philosophy to bring in, but, I would think your head coach is going to have something to say about that as well. So D'Amico is going to know not only what kind of linebackers he wants, but he's got to give his vision of how he sees this team schematically. And sometimes that can be done without a full staff in place, especially on the defensive side, because that's his area of expertise. But he's going to have to get some offensive ideas so that we can find what kind of an offensive lineman works, its strengths, its weaknesses, what kind of positions are we going to put these players in? Because that criteria that you use to evaluate and value and acquire players is your blueprint that you're going to use for the next four or five years. So a lot of big informational meetings and they're spending probably way too much time behind closed doors and not enough watching tape and getting to know my team. Yeah. I can't imagine having even time to, to, uh, to watch any tape, but the job description part, that's really interesting to me because you're, you're making this big transition from lovey skiff, lovey Smith, Tampa to not a, not a, not a very complicated system. He ran a pretty vanilla defensive scheme. And so you're making that big transition from that to this. And then it looks like it with, with Bobby Slowick potentially coming in as the offensive coordinator, according to all reports, you know, he's going to bring over a zone blocking scheme, which is completely different than the power gap scheme that they ran before that. So, so you're looking at you basically you're, but when you say job description, you're, you're, you're defining the traits, right? You're defining the, this is the size players we need. This is the speed that they can run. These are the type of systems that they have knowledge in. This is what I need from my middle linebacker and what his ability is to do. This is what I need my tackle, my offensive tackles to be able to do, to be mobile, to get out and pick up blocks and things like that. So that's what you're saying. Basically on a job description is getting real granular on every position across your roster of what you define that position, that player to be able to fulfill. Yep. I think they have to set the criteria and you may talk at nauseum for hours and sometimes days on how the priorities of those criteria come out. Because one thing that might be important to Lovey Smith and his scheme won't be as important to D'Amico or vice versa. So you've got to set the criteria for all of these jobs. And so you may have four or five things that we're going to ask our corners to do per se, but one might be press, one might be playoff, one might be play all kinds of different techniques. Another one might value tackling more than not. Another one might say, well, unless he's going to force the run and, and find a way to keep the balls inside him in the running game, that's, that's fatally flawed. All of these strategic things, all of these visions as to what you want your defensive guys to do factors into these job descriptions. And then there's a disconnect in a lot of NFL front offices where the, the personnel guys aren't looking for the right kind or the same guy that the defensive coaches are looking for invite. And that's just an, as an, as an example, and you have this at every position throughout the roster. So um, 
there, there will be some disagreement. There will be some uh, acquiescing to common ground in all of these things. I remember talking with Nick Saban about this for hours one day, him and I sat down and kind of mapped out our criteria. And he had, he was really good to me in that he allowed me to have some input, but he was, a, as you might know, a, a strong opinionated guy who has had very much success. So I'm not going to tell him what we're going to look for. So we had to work together on it. And these are all projects that Nick and D'Amico will have to work out and it's going to take some time. Yeah. And that, that relationship I think is going to be, it's going to be really interesting to watch <clears throat> monitor especially over the first six months or so, because Nick, by function of the head coaches that were here the past two years with David Coley and Lovie Smith, you know, Nick kind of got thrust into the forefront and kind of was the face of the franchise per se. You know, there was no, no star quarterback on the roster or anything like that. And I, the, the feeling that I get when you watch the press or the press conference, the intro, and you talk to people behind scenes, it's like Nick, is really looking for somebody to be collaborative with. Mm-hmm. And before it felt like he really had the reins on the roster. And so curious to see how much input, and I don't want to say roster control, because I, I I think that's kind of a funky thing to define, like who yeah. has control over the roster. I think it should be a collaborative effort between mm-hmm. your coach and your GM. And you, you know, the GM is trying to identify players to fit the coaches, like those job descriptions, like he lined up. Yep. That's the GM's, you know, they're, their 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 job responsibility per se is just try to fulfill those job descriptions. So it'd be fun to see how that how that balance goes between them because it it almost kind of get the feeling that Nick is more of a micromanager in some aspects. And so I wonder if he's gonna kind of hand off and be more collaborative this time around. And you see that with the coaching staff that they're building. They're not just sticking with just one bucket they're pulling out of. You know, they got Mac Burke coming over from Arizona. A uh, couple guys coming over from San Francisco, and they're really just kind of picking across the league. So, I think it's going to be a a more wide berth, wide decision tree, and with D'Amico and and Nick at the top per se. No, I totally agree, and I'm I'm hopeful that D'Amico will have some say in this. And to be honest with you, and I'm sure you'll we'll get into this, the Texans aren't good enough right now, so they need some vision from outside the building. It just can't be, you know, a monocular view of this is Patriot South because that hasn't worked real good. And it hasn't worked in other places where they've tried it as well. Unless Tom Brady's coming or Bill Belichick's coming, it's probably not going to work here either. So they've got to have some outside-the-box thinking. I almost think it would be helpful for a guy like Nick to have a set of evaluative eyes come from outside that New England way as well. Somebody that has developed players, somebody that's drafted players in a different system, in a different fashion. And and I'm glad to hear that the coaching side is picking from all all sides of the street. And, and I think that's good. I think you need, none of us are smarter than all of us. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, we want guys that can work together, that can build consensus and they need that on the personnel side too. So now would be the time to do it. I mean, let's face it. They have not had two very good years. This is the third coach in three years. And it's not all about the coach. As you know, it, it's, it's about players as well. And, and there's been a, a people have slipped through the cracks there too. So they're probably not where they should be. You see teams get rebuilt in shorter than three years nowadays. It happens quickly. The league is set up to get from bad to good in a hurry. Uh, Regardless of what their Jets have done. Yeah, the Jets have done. seems like they've been on this rebuild for five years and teams like that. That's crazy. These teams are rebuilt now in one or two years. Howie Roseman in, in Philly has been to two Super Bowls in the time the Jets have been on one rebuild. <laughs> yeah. so evaluations matter. 
valuations matter and building consensus matters. So I just think you can get boxed in of this is the way I've come up. This is the way I do it. I'm not going to change anything. You better have some flexibility if things aren't going right. And I think the more input that somebody like Nick could get, somebody like D'Amico has is going to be good for the Texans franchise in the long haul. Yeah. And I think flexibility is something that's coming. I think Nick maybe finally realizes he needs to be a little more flexible and not just build off of that new England way. And I can say multiple, multiple pieces of the fan base are tired of Patriot South, that nomenclature and and one. I mean, it, we've seen it time and time again, not work in multiple places. So it's definitely exciting. It's an exciting time for the fan base. It's, Probably the most, I mean, I go to all the games. I'm up in the press box every week and when they're playing at home and you just see in the, the stadium as empty as it is. And now you see the fan base completely energized. It's it's very exciting to see that coming back and, and hopefully they can continue on this path. You know, the, the talk about the interview process, you know, it was a, it seemed like a very well run or interview process this time, you know, Houston interviewed seven or eight folks. It looks like at least four or five of those are end up taking head coaching positions across the league. So they had a, they had a good eye on, on who they wanted to, to interview. But, you know, there was a report that came out today from DJ BNMA of Houston that uh, some of the interviews included potential discussions, what Houston might do at pick number two. And I just, I find that hard to believe. I don't, or maybe it's more of a, a high level 30,000 foot discussion with that number one, number two pick during your head coach interviews, but I can't imagine you getting that granular in that type of interview being this far away from the draft. Is that, do you think there's any, any, anything to that type of report? I don't think there would be at all. I think that's a pie in the sky conversation. For one thing, these coaches wouldn't be qualified to even answer that. So you can have a a 30,000 foot discussion on it, but for one thing, they, they, they've been all coaching for the most part. They, they have not, ever done this before if you're talking about just assistance so they wouldn't be qualified they wouldn't be up to speed on how this would happen hey i do it for a living and i'm not up to speed on it yet so to have that kind of conversation sounds to me like it'd be that's pointless just yeah 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 that's kind of my that's that's been the common common feedback on that report and i mean i I love dj with all my heart he's a good dude and i just yeah i don't know him but yeah that's a tough one there but so you know but it's a there's a lot of things happening for Houston is very exciting. And there is one veteran player on the roster that has a lot of people taking questions. And I, I'm not sure how familiar you are with the situation with Brandon cooks. You know, he's a wide receiver, number one wide receiver for Houston. He signed a, a two year or three year extension last off season has an $18 million salary guarantee this year and had quite a bit of vocal discontent last year leading up to the, to the trade deadline Houston and Dallas had the framework of a trade worked out and it fell through at the last second. I'm not going to rehash why that happened, but it really, really kind of got cooks on the wrong side. He thought he was headed out of town and ended up staying here. And then Jack Easterby was let go, which whom he's very, very close with. And then he had additional comments of not wanting to be a part of a rebuild, not being happy here. What kind of, if the, if Casario wanted to try to trade him, whether it's, you know, at the new league year or leading up to the draft. Do you have any kind of thoughts on what kind of draft value a player like cooks, who's probably a top 15, maybe top 20 wide receiver at the, you know, if you look at it from an overall perspective, but having that big $18 million fully guaranteed salary, what kind of trade value do you think he might have? 
I'll be honest with you. I think it's minimal. I really do. If you combine his cap numbers with his actions, especially the last year, you're already talking about a guy that's been traded three times. How many, yep. maybe four, I don't yep. know. So there, these other organizations have said pump the brakes as well. Uh, how he got to where he is now is really not up for debate. He's, he's, he's attached with an $18 million cap number. Like you said, not going to be a lot of teams willing to dole out much to take a receiver in this day and age for that kind of money. That seems like an awfully high number. The other thing is you you'd probably, if we were D'Amico Ryan's want to sit down and have a conversation with him and, and really figure out is he, does he want to be part of the solution or do we need to move on? Because as, as Tom, Mike Tomlin said a year or so ago, we're not, we want volunteers, not hostages. Yeah. <laughs> and so if he feels like he's a hostage here, we're going to move on. I can promise you that he's not good enough to, to keep as a hostage if we're rebuilding at this point. So whatever has happened has happened, but it's, it's really a new sheriff in town now. And he's going to have to say he's in or out. And I can understand the fan base not wanting to hear any more about it. And like I say, for a guy that's been traded already a bunch of times, you know, I don't know. He has the guaranteed money, so maybe yeah. he can pick and choose and rework it with somebody else. But I don't think the Texans will get a bunch back for him. If I'm him and they give me permission to go seek a trade, why would I? It's kind of like what happened with Derek Carr with the Raiders. Why am I going to go to a team and redo my deal and then have them give a big pick to the Texans? Mm-hmm. He's not going to do that. He's not going to do the Texans any favors, nor would I want to give up a big chip that uh, my new team is going to have to add more to it. That's why I never thought Derek Carr would ever get traded because he has no trade clause. He can control the outcome of it. Yep. He's not going to go to the Saints or somebody like that and and say, hey, give up a second round pick for me. Why would he do that? He's going to be a free agent. I think if, if Brandon Cooks played his cards right, if he wants to be a free agent, that's what he'll get. I don't think they're going to hold this kid hostage. It just doesn't make sense. Not being where you're three and 13 and, and really your future is in doubt. Why would you want to add to it? to a disgruntled player if that's truly how he feels yeah hopefully i think like you said step one is just get him back to the table with yep. you know with the staff and you know re, just start start fresh per se and see if it's you know ask him the question are you in or out and if you're in we need you to be all the way in and yep. not not change midway through the season or anything like that and you know i think it's worth exploring that option because he's still a productive player. He's mm-hmm. still going to be a productive player. The free agency class with wide receivers is pretty, pretty bleak. The, you know, and what, you know, drafting wide receivers, there's not really any uh, major game changers that would come in year one. They're, they're all more players that would take a little bit of time to develop. So given the, the lack of depth in the current wide receiver room, I think it's a, a very strong conversation to be had to see if he's willing to be able to be all in and be a part of this, be a part of this team going forward. But uh, you mentioned Derek Carr and I did want to talk about that a little bit. And, you know, I think majority of people had the same opinion you had that there's no way he gets traded. I, I didn't see anybody willing to take on that contract at that value, you know, making 116 million over the next three years, regardless of what guarantee was going to kick in. And, uh I'm very curious to see what his what his market value is going to be in terms of a contract now that he's going to have potentially two or three or however many right. teams bidding on him. But do you think it was the right decision for him to just utilize the no no trade clause and push for the release, and that way he can pick and choose where he wants to go? 
100%. I don't think he had any choice. And again, he, why would he reward the Raiders by agreeing to a trade where they were going to, the new team was going to give up a chip that they could use yep. to get better themselves. So the, the dynamics of the deal were never there for me. Um, the no trade clause is value, right? And uh, if nothing else, this should be a lesson around the league that when you start giving out no trade clauses, you hurt your value. So they could not trade him because of that. I think it hurts value every time this comes up. Uh, and people just throw around a no trade clause sometimes thinking that they'll never use it. Don't worry about it. This came back to bite them. I, I think the worst thing that could happen is now for the Raiders to have egg on their face is that if Carr does sign with the Saints, all he did was go spend two or three days there last week, get to know him, get the physical, do all the dirty work. Now they're going to sign him to a deal, and he's not going to have to take a pay cut. I got news for you. He's going to have two or three teams that are willing to pay him. He'll get his money. And then he just walks into their building and thanks for the Raiders for giving me a three day head start on my new home. So that's the worst case scenario. If you're, if you're a, a Raider fan, but it's good for, good yeah, I had, for uh, I had put a, yeah, I had put a tweet out there that it was, it was nice of Los Angeles to allow Carr in uh, new Orleans to pre-negotiate his free yeah, agent contract, exactly. you know, while he was, to, and trust me, no trade clauses that Houston fans were very well aware of those when we got, yeah. when we went through the whole Deshaun Watson saga and his no trade clause. So it's legitimate yeah. value. Yeah, it is. And it's, you know, it is, it was interesting. There was a Joel Corey who uh, writes for CBS sports. He Mm -hmm. had made a note and I didn't realize it. And I went and looked at the player contract. Uh, DeAndre Hopkins had a no trade clause and it was voided when he got that six game suspension. And Mm -hmm. I hadn't seen that before in other contracts. So I went and looked at his player contract Mm -hmm. and, and sure enough, I looked, I posted a screenshot on Twitter today that it says in there, you know, if player defaults on paragraph 27, which is back to his, you know, his salary guarantees. And if he's suspended by the team or the NFL for any specific reasons, this no trade clause becomes null and void. So he lost that value. Like you said, he lost yeah. that value when he, when he got that suspension. So interesting, but I, yeah, so it'd be, I mean, it seems like Derek Carr and then obviously Aaron Rodgers, once he makes his decision, what he wants going to do. And it seems like, arrows pointing towards him getting traded it you know i think it feels like those are going to be the top two potential free agents and we say free agents and with air quotes with aaron Rodgers, right somebody's gonna be taking on a huge contract there but what on aaron Rodgers on the side of that like i just don't see how you green bay would be be able to get that much value back on Aaron Rodgers. I mean, he's 39. He's still a great quarterback. Don't get me wrong. And he probably still will be a great quarterback for another year or two or however long he chooses to play. But when you're taking on a contract, that's, especially it's got that amount of money year one, 60 million due this year in cash. And that that's not the cap number to, to be confused with, but it doesn't seem like, I know a lot of people just were like, Oh yeah, he'll get multiple first round picks. I don't see that happening. I see that as more of, you might get a second rounder, maybe a future first rounder, or maybe it's a second with conditions tied to it that if he plays another year, then it transfers into a one or whatever you can build around it. I just don't see Aaron Rodgers' value being that high as some people think it is. It will be hard to value him because of just what you said. How long are you getting the guy for? Is he going to commit to playing another two or three years? If he's only going to play one year, they're not going to get a first-round pick for him. I think you're right. It's going to have to be very inventive. They're going to get a second-round pick that becomes a first and maybe a third on the backside, or they're going to have to have some flexibility with regard to what the compensative package is. And again, you've got to throw in the fact that why would Aaron Rodgers want the team he's going with to give up a whole bunch as well? So when he says, I'm going to play for 
you know, one more year, then, then the Packers get less. And then he goes somewhere and plays for two or three more years. So you're exactly right there. It will be a conditional trade based on the amount of time, unless Aaron Rodgers is going to come clean. And I don't see that happening. He, he, dependent on the amount of time he says he's going to play. So that's the thing we don't know. And I guess we'd all like to have four days in a dark room to figure it out, but I don't know. I don't want to spend that much time in a dark room. <laughs> that's the oddest thing I've ever heard of the whole thing right there is he's going to go on some dark retreat for four days, but we yeah. shouldn't be surprised. Aaron has kept this all. And I've said from day one, he's, he's trolled us all for about two years now. And we can't wait for McAfee show every Tuesday to find out the next chapter. Yep. No, definitely. I got one question here before we, before we transition over to a different topic. Um, I had a question on uh, Randy's thoughts on front office evaluation on how, or how they evaluate strength and conditioning department and their performance. I don't know if you have any. It's a great question. It's sometimes the most important hire of a new staff. I think it's um, really important to one, get the best communicator you can, because when you think about it, this is a coaching position, much like a special teams coach that has range over your whole roster. He deals with every position, every person, and whether it's a guy or a gal, they've got to be a really good communicator. So yes, they have to have their beliefs in, in how to develop players and how to get our guys stronger and more fit and all that. But if they're a bad communicator, that's, a, that's going to be a struggle because they've got to appeal and sell their program to all walks in that locker room. And that's a really hard thing to do. So that's why you see a lot of, a lot of these coaches fall back with people that they really know. And I can actually make sense of that because they got to find the best communicators they can. They've got to deal with offensive linemen. They've got to deal with receivers, DBs, got to deal with a quarterback. And all of these personalities are completely different, much like a special teams coach. So other than the head coach, the special teams coach and the strength and conditioning coach deal with everybody. The other position coaches can get away with just dealing with their room. Their room is the entire building when you talk about strength and conditioning. So I think a lot of times um, you have to go through the same type of criteria as you would for a coach at a position, but you've got to really do your homework and find out who has developed players. And sometimes that's really hard. There's some gray area there. What do we determine is, as being a success? How can they, how can they be viewed in their prior jobs as being successful? And again, I'm a believer in this, set the criteria, figure out how we're going to measure that success and then do the research to figure it out. Yeah, good. Yeah. And it looks like, sounds like Houston's going to retain Mike Eubanks, who was the, the current uh, strength and conditioning coach. So reports say that he's going to be retained and I, it kind of one question kind of popped in my head while you're talking. So, the Texans, their their second first round pick last year, Kenyon Green plays left guard. Mm-hmm. Kind of really had still kind of a a young man's body. A, a, yep. You know, really didn't look like an offensive lineman per se. Still looked like he had that college kid kind of build on him. Yep. And it, I saw, and you know, when I go to training camp, you see the rookies when they come out after one year and their second year, and they've spent a full season in, a, in an NFL locker room. It just seems like a huge body transformation. Yep. And is that pretty common? Do you that you would see those, you know, once those rookies? And it depends on the college system. You know, some facilities, some systems may be stronger than others. But and plus, it's just a maturation of the of the player themselves and their body, and as they grow into an NFL body, but. It seems like that year one to year two is that big transition step for players and their bodies and their builds and their strengths. 
I think that's it's true in general. I, I would say this, A&M has had a pretty good program. I can't imagine them not putting out a guy that's strong, that has been developed. So I agree with you, though. And when I saw Green coming out, I thought, wow, this guy is not, he doesn't look the part. You know, his body needed to be firmed up. He had a lot of work to do. But you're right. Sometimes it takes the maturity. Your body's mature, especially when you're 22, 23 years old. We're all going to grow up at that point, and And our body's going to go through some changes. So I do think it's great to have those guys to work with. And I would probably be more concerned with a player's work ethic, his character, and a little bit of his background, as opposed to what he really looks like when he comes out of college, because there's different reasons why he might not be fully developed. But I think you're right onto something in that that first couple years in, in the league um, really can make or break an offensive lineman, a defensive lineman, somebody like that, where they've got to be big, strong, powerful and fit. Yep. Not it. I think like the biggest transformation I saw last year was Nico Collins, a wide receiver. Mm-hmm. When he came out during OTAs and we finally got to see him after, after uh, one year in the league, man, it just was the, the chopstick legs were gone. Good looking I mean, the, kid, wasn't he? Yeah. Cool. yeah. He looked like a, looked like somebody carved him carved him out and ready to go. And it was, yeah. it was interesting to see. And it was, so we'll kind of see if that maybe Kenyon Green can make that kind of transition. So, but yeah, if you got any questions or comments, folks that are watching, listening in, um, throw them up on the board. We'll uh, try to get to we can get to what we can with Mister Mister Randy tonight. And uh, as always, you're listening and watching the Cap and Trade Show. I'm your host at Texans Cap, and uh, make sure you like and subscribe to the show. So we're trying to tra- transition a little bit over to the draft, and there's been a lot of buzz the last 24 hours now that uh jim ursay fired off his his comments both at the presser and then followed it up with a little fun tweet with the chicago bears and i I think it's probably a little bit of a trolling a little bit of him having fun (laughs) at the expense of everybody else which is fine we know draft season is coming up and it's art now it's already in play ready to go and it's it's pretty much you just can't believe anything you read at this point for the next two months as we head into head up to the draft and, and Nick Casario usually keeps things pretty close to the chest as well. So what do you, th- what is your read currently on the situation with Chicago at, at 1.01? And I know things can change between now and then, but I personally don't have the opinion that they're going to get the kind of trade values that people think they're going to get. And I think it's going to almost be to the point where they're not going to see the value in trading down and trading out of that spot. Now, maybe Carolina, Atlanta, or somebody wants to make a big jump up. up. There's even a report that Tennessee wants to make the huge leap up there. But I think everybody's kind of looking at Indianapolis and Houston as they're both looking at quarter, you know, potential looking at taking quarterbacks. But my eyes today, I just don't see how Chicago with the way the board is potentially stacking up for them to be able to trade out of that position for a massive haul of picks. Like some people are thinking there is. I totally agree. I don't see a quarterback that I would be willing to do that for. And it, as we know, these kind of deals are made at the highest level when there is a scramble for quarterbacks, nobody's trading up for other positions where they're giving a massive haul. Like you just mentioned, um, I, I'm with you. I, if I was a betting man today, I don't think the Bears will be able to get a deal that makes sense for them to trade down. Because when you do trade down, you're trading out of a X quality amount of players as well. So you got to be careful how low you go. I, the other thing is it's supply and demand. And I don't think there's going to be teams willing to go up. I keep hearing the Bryce Young stuff. And, and we all talk about that. And that's 
Baskin Robbins has 31 flavors for a reason, right? We get to pick our favorite when we walk in the door. That wouldn't be my favorite. I know a lot of guys in the NFL where we're not looking for 5'10", 180-pound quarterbacks. So I don't think there's going to be a – I don't care what they say on TV. There's not going to be a a gold rush type uh, run on trying to get up to get that type of a quarterback. It's just not going to happen. I see see a lot of comments and people making – assessments of a player like that and and Bryce Young is what he is he's a good college player I get it but people that say this and that are mostly people that have never picked a player in their life Mm -hmm. they've never had to go on the clock to say hey this guy's going to be our guy for 10 years there's a lot of things that are involved in that it's not about I I laugh when I hear these draft gurus say let's just take a chance let's do this i got news for you nobody's taking a chance in the first round they're not they're yeah. really not nobody's rolling the dice and saying hey this sounds like a great idea let's do it it's not the way the nfl works on the inside so you know i don't i'm with you i think the bears are going to pick there and i think they'll get a really good player i don't think there'll be a scramble up to get a quarterback uh the one the other ones that are available i think will be available the other thing is i think they've made strides with justin fields in chicago i don't think he's going anywhere I heard some idiotic things on TV the last few days about Bryce Young being so much better than Justin Fields. And again, everybody can have their opinion. I just know how the NFL works. And I know a lot of these evaluators and they're not going to see it that way. I think Justin Fields made progress. I think he's can be looked at now as, as where maybe Jalen Hurts was a year ago. And there's some athleticism. There's an arm. There's all skills now that we've actually shown to be improved last year and a new coaching staff that's willing to do something with those skills. So long-winded answer. I apologize, but I don't see the bears moving at all. Yeah. And it, you know, I mean, we all have our opinions on the, on the quarterback situation and I've been a very adamant fan of Bryce Young. I I understand he is is an outlier and I get it. And, you know, you see everybody looking at pictures online and compared this (laughs) height against other people and trying to figure out how, how actually real, how tall he really is. And we'll, We'll find out when it comes to pro day or combine and, and the, the true numbers will come out. And, you know, he is a very dynamic player and he very well could be a very successful quarterback or his size may, may be an issue. And then you look at other players where they're more prototypical type size players with Stroud and, and Levis yep. and then Anthony Richards, who's a little bit more raw and they all have their plus or minuses per se and have their things that, that are, that are viewed well and some things they need to work on. And, and to your point, I, you know, I think Chris Ballard is a, a perfect example of it, yeah. that he's going to stick to his traits. He's going to stick to, like you said, the job description of the position and what he's looking for in a quarterback. And same with Nick Casario. I mean, I, you know, maybe they do take Bryce Young, but if you go back and look at New England's draft history. Yeah, I'd be shocked. He, yeah. They never, of course, they never had a pick this high up in the draft because they were always in the Super Bowl or, or playing, you know, in the playoffs. So their draft picks were always late in the first round, but you go back and look in their draft history, they never drafted a, a quarterback that was shorter than I think six foot one. And so, yeah. you know, those things matter and maybe they, they, they go outside the box, but it's just tough for a GM. And I'm sure you can attest to this. It's tough for a team to go outside of their trait, outside of their designated traits for a player at that spot in the draft that, you know, once you get into late day two, early day three, you know, maybe that's where you start taking chances mm-hmm. on players that show they have maybe very good athletic scoring, but maybe they're not fitting the trait. And that's where you start making those adjustments. But at 1.02, I can see from a front office perspective, it's hard to take a step out of that box with that type of that high of a draft pick. 
Yeah, it's almost impossible. And I happen to know that Patriot system, we ran that system when I was in Miami with Nick Saban. Him and Bill Belichick are the best of friends. And so they carried that with us to Miami. And we actually had insurance built into our system against ourselves to do something like you just said. We could not draft a 5'9 corner until the top of the third round. Okay. We could not draft a undersized defensive lineman until the top of the third round. We had built-in mechanisms that would not allow us to do that. So that so was your that was that, your draft guardrails per se. That was they, they but they came from New England. Right. So guess who came from New England yeah. as well? Yeah. He's going to have draft guardrails. I can promise you. And they're going to be stringent and nobody they don't make them public. I get it. We never did. But I know internally that these guidelines are there because you don't want to jump outside, like you said, the box to make a pick like this. And it's really, it's size is one thing, but size leads to durability issues. I don't care if it's a corner, an undersized linebacker. Bill Parcells told me this about 30 years ago when we first start, got to know each other and started talking. He said, Randy, little guys get hurt. He said, it's not my opinion. He said, it's just fact. Go back and study him. It is a big man's game and little guys get hurt way more often than you think. And again, it's irregardless of position. So that's one that I've lived with for a long time. And I think there's a lot of guys in the league that do the same thing. I can't believe a Bill Belichick disciple would think differently. Yeah. It's the same, same system. Yeah. It's, it'll be interesting to see, you know, Nick's going to try to, you know, he's going to have to stick to his board. Like you said, his traits, mm-hmm. but I feel like there's that momentum being built within the fan base to get the fans back into the stadium, to continue building off what they have, what momentum they have with D'Amico Ryans. And I truly do think a quarterback is very much in the crosshairs for them at 1.02. I just don't know who it's going to be just yet. And, you know, got plenty of time to, to try to digest and pick and, and do and, and figure out yeah. all that. But, um, one thing, you know, and speaking of trades, and I've always wanted to ask people that have worked in positions such as you have, and I've heard Nick talk about it as well a few times, but value in draft day trades, right? So we all know there's the famous Jimmy Johnson trade draft draft chart, you know, the point system. And I, I, I've, from my understanding, teams, each team probably has their own custom point system per se but they maybe use the Jimmy Johnson card when they're just talking back and forth between GM, between GM on draft day, say, I'm going to, you know, I can give you this and this and this, you know, 320 points worth, you know, what do you, what are you coming back with me yet? Is that, do you think that's pretty accurate today that maybe that's the common, common discussion points or the common language that they speak between the two when they're making these trades on draft day, but they're also putting their hand, putting it on hold and like, okay, what does our system say? What are we getting out of this on trade value versus what? Because I've seen them all. My, I've got a spreadsheet. I think I'm up to like mm-hmm. 10 different point systems from various different sources. So the, can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, we're in the world of analytics, right? I mean, there's, everybody wants to assign numbers to everything in the world, whether it's objective or subjective. We, we subject our systems to, to analysis by, trying to make it objective. And it's, it's a lot of times it's not. Um, I've seen all these trade values. I think it, it is used for the most part to start the discussion, to get you in the ballpark so that somebody doesn't get embarrassed. So I think it's, it's like trading uh, uh, with training wheels, right? It's like you're, you're a training wheels GM if that's what you're going to use the whole time. Because really what it comes down to is supply and demand. If I have two teams that want to go up and get something that I have, 
I stand a better chance of making a deal than if it just won. And the same thing if I'm backing out of a place. So going up, going down, it's dictated by supply and demand. If I'm the only one going up, and I've been that guy many times in my career, and if I'm the only guy, I'm going to get a pretty good deal. Because there's four teams that want to trade down. Guess what? I have a good chance of making a pretty good deal with one of those four teams if no one else is going up. So I do think the trade charts, and you're right, they're different and dependent on what team you have. But it, it keeps teams on the rails, but it doesn't make any deals. Now, there are some teams that adhere strictly to that trade chart and won't make a deal. Those guys would drive me crazy because they'll, they'll, they'll never make a deal You know, outside yeah. of – you talk about having stringent guidelines. They won't make a deal outside those guidelines. So I got, so I wouldn't even call those guys. If, if we don't have an exact point system and I'm not looking to rob them or do anything like that. I'm just looking to uh, apply the supply and demand philosophy in that if they really want to come down, they might have to take a discount to do it and vice versa. So I think there's common sense that's involved, but I do think those charts more now, more now than ever are prevalent to at least get the discussion going. Yeah, that makes sense. And it, it seems like as of late, looking at the past two or three years, no, if you're going to trade with Howie Roseman, you're probably going to lose. It seems yeah, like he well. seems to come out on the positive side. But it, to your point, I, I agree. I don't think teams are looking tr- to try to rob another team or try to really work them over. Some are. Trust me, some are. Well, yeah. Fair, fair. <laughs> and I think it's more so like just trying to get the best value for their organization and work with somebody that, you know, let's try to find a happy medium here that something works for both of us while maybe not trying to win the trade, but I'm trying to do the extract the most value for my organization, most value for this potential situation, I guess would kind of be my read of the situation, but I'm sure there are probably some behind closed doors. But like, ah, I'm going to, I need to get, get over on this guy a little bit. Maybe they got a little history. Maybe they got, you know, just who knows, but I can't imagine I just would love to be a fly on the wall sometime one day in my life, whether it's in a draft room or during a contract negotiation, uh, anything like that. It'd always be very fascinating to me to see and listen to. I always took it as sometimes some teams are not as confident. So they really hide behind those trade charts. They're not as confident in their evaluations and they're surely not confident that they're not going to get criticized from the outside. So those are the teams that sometimes adhere or don't make a deal at all. I wasn't really ever one of those that was afraid to take a little criticism. If it was the best thing for us, I'm going to do it. And if it didn't work out exactly like the trade chart, either good or bad, it didn't stop me from making a deal. I didn't care if I was going to get criticized because we were 12 points short when we traded up in the fifth round. It just didn't make sense to me. Here's what I want. I want the player Mm -hmm. and I want to make that happen. So I'm going to go up even if I'm given a little too much. That's how I felt about it. So I went a lot with my gut as well. Yeah, we've seen that with Nick. He's uh, with Casario. He's moved up and down the draft already, two drafts in now. But he's been really aggressive in that second and third round, trading up for uh, John Mechie last year, trading up for Nico Collins in the third round year before that. And, you know, he has no qualms about moving up or down. And that was That's you know, almost a staple of, of Bill Belichick and how he navigated through the through the drafts over the years. You know, it seems like they're constantly moving up or down. And you just try to identify, like you said, you find a player you like they're and confident, yeah. And you find a find a partner that makes sense. And if you're giving up a little value, then you do it because you feel confident in that player and that and you go and get them. So that's a that's a good thing. That, you know, 
that's a, I appreciate the feedback on that. I do have one question here from Travis regarding uh, draft history. So what, what draft pick in, in your history are you most proud of? Well, for me, it's a fairly easy one and I've had a long, pretty long body of work in that, but I always go back to the Walter Jones pick in Seattle. Um, most people think he's the best offensive lineman to ever play in the league. And I'm surely not taking credit for any of that, but it's, it's funny. He wasn't even our first pick that year. We drafted Sean Springs with the third pick. And then we drafted Walter with the sixth pick. What we had done was we had the, either the 10th and 11th or the ninth and 10th pick to start with. And we ended up making um, several trades to turn them into three and six. And we drafted Sean Springs, a corner from Ohio state at three who went on to make pro bowl. And then Walter Jones, who we all know is a hall of fame left tackle with six. And I would be hard pressed to think of a pick that turned out better for a franchise. I mean, he's cornerstone left tackle for, I don't know, 15 years or however long it was. So, Probably an easy one for me to say that was the best pick that we as a group were able to to make. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Um, one last thought that I just kind of want to get your take on just kind of, you don't have to dive into the weeds or anything like that, but just what's your kind of overall take on how Nick Casario has managed this team, this organization through the first two years, you know, it's been a, a difficult situation. Bill O'Brien and, and the previous administration did, did not do any, did not leave yeah. anything, did not do the team any favors with some of the contracts they handed out and how the roster was constructed. And then, you know, dealing with the whole Deshaun Watson situation and how the team navigated through that. I mean, what's your, what's your kind of read on his first two years in and where the team is headed? Well, I'll say this, and, and I don't know Nick personally, uh, and I don't want to offend anybody, but he, he was dealt a shit sandwich. Yep. I mean, really, it was not a good situation. Um, yep for all the reasons. And, and there's even more that we could get into, as you know, cause you're a part of it all the time. So through that, he's tried to endure a couple different coaching, coaching searches that have been hard to follow and hard to connect dots on for whatever reason. I don't know. So I think if you were any far be it from me to be on the outside being critical, you'd probably give the first two years a C minus to this point. Maybe Marco Ryan's get some D'Amico Ryan's get some going a little bit. Like you said, some momentum is built. Um, I just hope there's flexibility because the, the, what we started our conversation with about the Patriots way, although it's great and I have respect for what they have done in new England, it is almost impossible to duplicate it and you have to be yourself. And so I'm hopeful that if nothing else, that he has learned the first couple of years that I got to think outside the box a little more. I would add to my personnel staff. Like I said before, I would get some go-to evaluators that I really trust and I'm, Really, when you don't, when you limit yourself on gathering opinions, that's not doing justice to the job and to the franchise. So hopefully he can add a few evaluators to the mix and get some different opinions and maybe even a guy or two that have built teams before. I just, I always felt that was valuable to have eyes that came from other places and other ways of doing things to add to the mix. Now, maybe D'Amico Ryans is that guy. He, maybe he will do that. Obviously, he's been with a couple teams as a player. He's been with the 49ers now who do things totally different than the Patriots do. So maybe uh, they will make some more changes, but now's the time to do it. Long term in the NFL, let's face it, is two or three years now, and it's been two years. So I think the job so far, the results kind of speak for themselves. You'd have to see some more progress here to, to before you really 
really could say, hey, we're headed in the right direction. They were stuck with a bunch of bad, a uh, couple bad hands. Like you said, cap numbers, trades that eliminated draft picks. Um, the Deshaun Watson whole debacle, that was not Nick's fault at all. Uh, whatever happened with the Jack Easterby thing, that's been a black cloud as well. So all of these things have been in the mix. It's hard to do your job when you have to deal with all these kind of distractions and maybe he's doing as good as he can to this point. Yeah. I feel like, I feel like that you're starting to see a little light at the end of the tunnel. And yeah. They won two out of three. They got a little momentum going and, yeah. and we'll see. Yeah, I yeah. think with the, with the new coach hire, cause this is, like I said, this was by far and ahead the number one choice across the majority of the fan base with D'Amico Ryan's coming in. And so, you know, hopefully the momentum continues on and, and yep. this team can start finding a little bit of, a little bit of success and get the fan base reorganized, re-energized. And I'm just really looking forward to showing up at the game day and looking down and seeing actual Texan jerseys and not yeah. nothing, the opposing team's jerseys filling up the stadium. So let me just say one word yeah. on that. And I know what you're saying because uh, a few of these, if of our fans, maybe they remember the Houston Roughnecks. Well, I built that team. And so I spent some yeah, time in I Houston. The fans are unbelievable in Houston. It is a great passionate football base. And I would love that. Hopefully what you're saying to come true because they, they, they need it. They, they deserve it. They need it. And there's no reason they can't, have a great franchise that they're all proud of. So I'm with you. I hate seeing those empty seats. Maybe this, this hire of this coach can get them headed in the right direction. Yeah. So it looks like for you, you got uh, the season starting up this coming weekend, right? Yep. We, we were in midweek uh, for preparing for our first game against DC on ESPN on Sunday night and uh, up in Washington, DC. So I'm looking forward to that. And we've got a good group uh, in Seattle now. So we're anxious to get going. Jim Hazlitt's my coach. And, and as, as many Houston people know, June Jones is our offensive coordinator. He was head coach of the Roughnecks. So we've kind of got the band back together again. And and I kind of like our team and we'll see how it shakes out. Yeah, no, it's exciting. It'd be a, be fun. Are you traveling up to the game or do you stay? Oh yeah, no, out? we'll travel. We'll head up on Saturday. And uh, I would like to say, we'll see you when we come down to play the roughnecks, but we actually play the roughnecks in Seattle. So oh, they are not right. in our division or our side of the, the conference. So right. we'll play them up in Seattle. So I won't get to, to go down and see those <laughs> roughneck fans that were awesome. Even for a 35 year NFL guy, I enjoyed that environment that we had going at, at uh, Houston stadium on campus there. It was fun. Yeah. Well, I, you know, Randy, I appreciate the time, sir. I think that's about everything I had that I wanted to cover tonight. Um, I appreciate everybody listening in and the questions that were posted and all the support that the channel continues to, to gather and garner from everybody involved. And, you know, like I said, make sure you like subscribe. It really helps the channel out, helps me continue to grow and try to make this the best product and make it the most fun product that we have out there covering the Texans in the league. And, uh, you know, Randy, again, I appreciate it, sir. And I wish you the best of luck and success this coming season. And uh, don't be a, don't hesitate to reach out. I'm sure I'll be uh, sending you a message here or there on Twitter. And, and uh, if I got any questions or concerns and you've always been uh, willing do. to willing to answer. And I appreciate that. So with that, uh, we'll go ahead and uh, close it down. And Randy, I hope you have a good night, sir. Thanks a lot. I enjoyed it. Anytime. Good to be with you. All right. Well, with that, we will close it down and everybody have a good evening. Thank you.